you're listening to Bricks and Mortar from EG with Sarah Jackman. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Joanna Lampert, a partner specialising in property litigation at law firm Mishkondorea. Joanna has over 20 years experience advising on property disputes and in September 2020 was appointed as a deputy master of the Chancery Division, hearing cases in the business and property courts. Joanna, many thanks indeed for joining me today. Um, We're going to take a look at your career in property law. I guess my first question is why, why law? I don't think I necessarily had an intention to come into the law until quite late on. I think I always expected to be an accountant. I was really good at maths um, and I loved working with numbers. And I had a parent who was an accountant and I'd always sort of spent time in my father's office. And I think the expectation was always that I was going to be an accountant. And then when I was at university, I studied um, maths and management sciences in Manchester. And in my second and third years, I had the option of taking some law courses. So in my second year, I did a a sort of introduction to, to law, which covered a bit of contract and taught and the English legal system. In my third year, I did employment law and I absolutely loved it. And I knew from that point on that um, I definitely wanted to be a lawyer. So got to towards the end of my third year of university and I came home and I made this big announcement that I wasn't going to be an accountant anymore and that actually I'd applied to law school and uh, that's what I would be doing in September. And I think I was genuinely born to be a lawyer. I had not been particularly academic. I had found A-levels quite challenging and I'd in fact found university quite challenging. But once I got to law school, it all fell into place. It was engaging, it was challenging and and I started to do well. So I I just sort of needed to find something that that spoke to me and something that motivated me and, and the law was obviously it. So tell me then about your route to qualification. You went to law school then and presumably then went on into practice. Yes. So because I didn't do a law degree, I had to do a one year conversion course at law school. And that is a very intense 12 month course, which really um, provides the basics of a law degree in one year. I personally don't think it was as as engaging as a law degree would have been because it was very much these are the basics you need to know without any learning around reading around the subject you just had to bash out this black letter law so that was my conversion course it it was fine and then it was the following year that I really loved which was uh, in those days it was called the legal practice course and it taught you in a very practical way how to be a lawyer. So when you were doing the property law module, it taught you how to buy and sell a property and it taught you in very practical stages how to actually do it from the onboarding of the clients to the taking of instructions to the drafting of the documents to the actual executing of the transaction and registering it at the end. And it just really appealed to me. And as I say, it was a very practical course. So I got a lot of practical experience 
of property law and I also got practical experience as a litigator. So as a litigator, it taught you every stage in the process from the taking of the instructions to the issuing of the proceedings, each of the practical steps in the proceedings with a bit of practice advocacy along the way. And I absolutely loved it. And by the time I'd finished the course and I'd graduated, I thought I knew everything there was to know about being a lawyer, because obviously I'd done this hypothetical conveyancing transaction. I'd done this hypothetical piece of litigation. That was all I needed to know. So I then hit the ground running. I did my training contract at a small firm in the West End. It's fair to say that there wasn't a lot in the way of formal training, but I got lots of practical hands-on experience. It was very much a sink or swim type of training contract where I was pretty much left to my own devices and I just cracked on with being a lawyer and loved it. So tell me then, I mean, you you encompass two elements now. You you obviously have the the property law where you specialise and also the litigation side of things. So how how did you really sort of focus in on those particular disciplines? So I always had in mind that I wanted to be a litigator and that was very much the focus of my training contract. But the firm that I worked in was a typical West End firm which had a busy conveyancing practice. And it just so happened that a lot of my litigation work had some property aspect to it. And when I just after I qualified, I thought to myself, I've had a great experience, I've had two years, have really loved it but I want to stretch myself. I want to do more than just be in this small firm. I want to go somewhere bigger. And also I want to go somewhere where I'm going to get a bit more training and some mentoring. And a job as a property litigator came up. And I really struggled with it at the beginning because it it hadn't been what I'd set my heart on at all. I thought I was going to be a commercial litigator running into buildings to exercise search orders and applying for freezing injunctions and and all those things that they do in, in the commercial litigation world. And I was really a bit nervous about specialising in property quite early on. But the firm I was moving to had an excellent reputation in property litigation. It was ranked number one in directories. And the partner that I was going to work for was was acknowledged both as an excellent property litigator and also as a great teacher. It was quite a difficult decision at the time, but I, I went for it. And obviously, I haven't looked back. And one of the things I particularly love about being a property litigator is that it's actually a very collegiate part of the legal profession. And I know, Sarah, you've been to Property Litigation Association conferences in the past, and and you've seen from those that whilst property litigators might write robustly to each other um, in correspondence on behalf of our clients, might fight hard in in court. Actually, when we get together for a conference or a glass of wine or, or whatever, we actually all get on brilliantly. And it's the collegiality that for lots of us means that we can do the best job for our clients because but having a constructive dialogue with with an opponent is is a far better way to conduct litigation than all out war. And actually, property litigation um, is, is particularly conducive to that. So you mentioned 
the aspects of it that you like. But tell me a little bit about the day to day and, and the sorts of work that you advise on. So property litigation is is really wide um, and far more encompassing than people might think. Property litigation is not simply landlord and tenant law. It includes landlord and tenant law. So we will do on the commercial side or the 1954 Act, lease renewals, dilapidations claims, break clauses, and on the residential side, service charge disputes, break notices, possession claims. But it's so much wider than that. It goes into real property. So over the last decade or so, we've seen a massive increase in rights of light work. Rights of light became the big buzzword in property litigation because suddenly people realised that that rights of light was um, and being able to deal with rights of light was the key to unlocking um, the development potential of large amounts of real estate in big cities. If you can buy out rights of light or if they if, if you can identify where rights of light don't exist or if you can build strategies to avoid infringing people's rights of light that unlocks the development potential of land and suddenly everybody was um, getting involved in rights of light and it's very much a specialist area rights of light rights of way easements all of these development constraints that are the key to unlocking value in undeveloped sites is the work of a property litigator. But I've I've sort of always gone um, much more wide than that. I've done property-related professional negligence claims. So that might be claims against valuers. It might be claims against surveyors if there are defects in the, the physical quality of the land. I've done funding disputes. I've acted for large well-known banks doing enforcement work on behalf of fixed charge receivers during the 2008 property crash onwards. I've done joint venture disputes in relation to joint uh, property joint ventures where you know we have these 200 page property joint venture documents or development agreements but people very frequently um, don't go back and look at what their obligations actually are and relationships quickly break down so it can be so wide I've got I've got such a an interesting roster of cases at the moment I've got a case involving property transaction where a house was purchased and um, the house is now said to be infested with moths. I've got a case where the land registry is refusing to register the transfer of a freehold because somebody has popped out of the woodwork with an objection that is difficult to understand and, and, and nobody knows who these objectors are or who these or, or what their motivation is. I've got a huge multi-multi-million pound claim um, concerning conspiracy to divert a, uh, uh, an opportunity to acquire a, a development site. And, and the claim is in dishonesty, knowing receipt, dishonest assistance. None of this is sort of bog standard landlord and tenant law. It's much richer and much more interesting than that. Huge range then of, of advisory work that you're involved in day to day. And I guess people might be interested to know, I mean, what proportion of, of that work ends up in court? I mean, to what extent do you find yourself in court these days? I find myself in court very rarely. 
a, a lot of us litigators do it for the thrill of the trial. You don't go into litigation if you don't have the stomach for a bit of conflict and confrontation. And a day in court, if you're a junior lawyer, a day in court is is what you look forward to. And I was really fortunate when I was a junior lawyer, the opportunities to go to court um, were frequent. I would be down at Central London County Court week in, week out. I'd go to what's known as the Bear Garden in the Queen's Bench Division in the High Court where the, the Queen's Bench Masters sit. And we'd be making simple applications for extensions of time or or stays of proceedings or for further information. Junior lawyers would would always do these very simple, straightforward applications. And I used to go to court all the time. But as my career has developed, so has civil procedure. And, And in fact, I qualified just at the time that the civil procedure rules came into effect. And what the civil procedure rules did was They ripped up the rule book relating to litigation. At the time, it was two huge volumes of the white book and there was a separate green book for the the county court. And it contained all the rules for conducting litigation and and it contained decades worth of case law and it was very complicated and difficult to understand. And what they did in 1999, just after I qualified, was they ripped up the rule book and they rewrote the rules in a way that was intended to be simple to understand, to minimise costs and to be capable of being understood by laymen. And that was great at the time because it levelled the playing field. So, so when I went for my interview for my first role as property litigator and somebody asked me what I thought about the civil procedure rules, which were just about to be introduced, my slightly cocky answer at the time, because I was a little bit chippy even in those days, was was to tell this, this very senior eminent partner that I thought it was great because actually their experience of litigation procedure was was no longer any greater than mine because we were all starting from scratch from a, from a new set of rules that nobody had any experience in. And actually being a junior lawyer at that time, it was a great time to learn because because we literally started litigation procedure from from scratch and i was it, it came in 6 months after i qualified and as a new lawyer newly qualified lawyer i was expected to do all the training and go to all the sessions and and be on top of all this stuff and you had older partners for whom this was completely alien who who actually needed us to to sort of help them through the through the process. Now, of course, the roles are reversed and they keep changing the rules. And I rely on my junior colleagues to tell me what I now need to know. But it was a great time and I got lots of court experience. But what those rule changes did was they encouraged parties to settle and they encouraged parties to to be more cooperative and collaborative so that you didn't need to go running down to court every time you needed an extension of time because if the request was reasonable your opponent was expected to agree to it and we started doing mediations in order to settle claims and therefore we didn't have trials anymore because we were much more skilled at being able to settle claims and so that's a very long answer to your question which is I don't go to court very often at all anymore because we are very skilled and and every good litigator should be skilled at actually achieving a settlement where a settlement is capable of being achieved and i would say that i settle 
95% of my cases. If I have a trial every two years, that's probably a lot. It makes sense to settle. It doesn't matter if you um, have the stronger case in litigation or you have the weaker case in litigation. Both parties should have been able to analyse the case in exactly the same way. And therefore, both parties know if they go to trial, who's going to win and who's going to lose. If you know that at the beginning, why would you go to trial? You don't want to go to trial as the loser because not only do you lose, you pay all the costs of the process. And as as the prospective winner, you've got no need to go to trial if somebody's going to make you a sensible settlement offer. And therefore, most cases, unless they involve really obscure new points of law or unless they involve really serious disputes around facts where often one person is is lying because otherwise the facts should speak for themselves. There's no need to go to court. That said, here at Mishcom, we really do more, I would say, trial work and court work than, than most property litigators. Clients come to us where they feel a case is likely to fight and is going to need a trial. And you know, we we are very, very experienced at doing that if, if it's necessary. It's not to say we won't always try to find a commercial solution, but if court is what's needed, then, you know, we're absolutely fearless when it comes to, to doing what's needed. You mentioned, now that property litigators have developed the skills to be able to settle things and, and to resolve disputes. I mean, what skills do you think that people need to be successful in the role? To settle, I think people have to be willing to take a realistic view of what the strengths and weaknesses of a piece of litigation are. And then you have to look at the levers. What's really motivating the litigation? Sometimes it's purely money. Sometimes it's it's a point of principle that can actually be an apology often goes a long way in a settlement negotiation. Sometimes sometimes a litigant just wants the other party to acknowledge they've done something wrong. And that's why settlement negotiations and mediation in particular can be really effective because it delivers something that, that a trial itself doesn't deliver. And that's the personal interaction between the parties. And once parties actually start talking and narrowing the issues between them, you can often bring, bring about a, a settlement that's far more favourable than the outcome that either side would have got if they'd actually gone to litigation. But I think the key to being a successful litigator, I think one of one of the most important things is tenacity. Often in litigation, your opponent just keeps throwing stuff at you, throwing, 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 or delaying, or raising new points. And you've just got to stick with it. Where others would give up, you've just got to keep going in the knowledge that you're going to get there in the end. Um, but some litigation runs on on for years. I mean, not on my watch, it doesn't, because, you know, claimant or defendant, no one wants litigation hanging over them um, for a prolonged period of time. And and you've just got to find ways to bring it to, to a final conclusion, whether that's a trial, whether it's a settlement meeting, whether it's a mediation, you know, bringing, bringing things to an end one way or another is is what we're here to do, really. 
just thinking back then to your journey through property litigations, where you are now, I mean, you obviously sort of moved through those junior years of, of going to court and, and really sort of learning the process. You moved through the ranks to partnership. Tell me a little bit about that journey to partnership and, and how you sort of balance the work and, and life through that period. Um. So I was I went through the ranks in the usual way, junior associate, associate, senior association. I was made partner when I was around eight years qualified, which was was relatively early, even back in the day. But I I don't think anyone that's ever worked with me would question how committed I've always been to my role. And I I think it was a combination of technical ability an ability to get a good result, good client relationships and good feedback from clients. In fact, good feedback from my opponents. I I remember very clearly to this day that when I was up for partnership, just around the time I was up for partnership, I did a case against, you probably know him, Ian Briley from DLA Piper. I can't remember what the case was about, but what I do remember was that after the case, He very graciously emailed the partner that I was working for and said I had done a good job on that case as his opponent. And it all sort of fed into the overall performance record. And so I think I became a partner, as I say, both because of technical ability, the ability to keep clients happy, the ability to work well with my opponents. And also um, I had some ability to develop new business and I think one of the things that junior lawyers really need to focus on more is building their networks and developing their practice because actually that's what is needed from the partners of the future. Technical excellence alone isn't what builds a law firm. A law firms are built on relationships and it's really important to remember that junior people in within client businesses, junior personnel within client businesses also progress and become senior personnel within client businesses and become decision makers. And junior barristers that we might work with when we're newly qualified, as we're building our careers, they're building their careers and they become senior barristers and QCs. And I always built my network in that way by making contacts with people at my level um, within client businesses and at the bar and developing and maintaining those relationships. And to this day, I still work with people who were in my network when I was a junior lawyer and they are now senior. Um, And that's how I built my my network. And I think that that is the key to um, achieving partnership. That's the certainly in, in my experience. Um, obviously, every firm will have different criteria for what they want to see in partners. But building a network is, is to my mind, absolutely essential. But also just making a, a wider contribution to the to the business that you work in, whether that's mentoring more junior lawyers, whether it's being involved in training initiatives, um, whether it's being involved in other firm-wide initiatives. So, for example, 
here at Mishcon, we have a huge number of, of different initiatives, um, whether it be around diversity and inclusion or whether it's around, you know, in, environmental or whether it's around training or, or technology, for example. And, and, and one of the things I did when I joined Mishcon was get involved in some of our new technology initiatives where we have um, incubated in what we call the MDR lab legal tech startups. Um, and I've been involved in two of these initiatives, one of them specifically relevant to uh, the real estate industry, which is a when I joined the firm, um, they were they were absolutely fledgling. They, they called Orbital Witness and they were um, some young guys who had developed this product that provided an interface with the land registry, which meant that you could all very seamlessly download property information through Orbital Witness and, and it provided this incredibly efficient interface. And I thought it was awesome and, and, and I trialled it when I joined the firm and I also, you know, worked a little bit alongside the developers of the product. And um, and it, it's been an absolutely revolutionary piece of piece of technology, and and actually the the business itself has has gone on to be very successful and to be involved in a number of very important initiatives. Um, for example, with the land registry, and so you know that was a, an an example of getting involved in something um, more widely within my firm, not specifically to do with property litigation, but it meant I got to meet other people across the firm, build more of a network. And, and being involved in, in a, a, an initiative around technology um, puts you at the coalface. We had the ability to feed back into this product, to critique it, to make it better, to tell them what we didn't like. And all the time they were they were refining it. So there's all sorts of different initiatives. And, and I, I feel that law firms are such rich environments that they, and, and I'm, I, I don't mean in financial terms, that they present opportunities for people to play to their skill sets, find something that you love, whether it's technology, whether it's training and learning, or whether it's marketing, find what you love and, and, and go for it. I often talk to guests on this series about a lack of awareness around careers in the built environment, particularly at, at school age. Do you think there's a similar issue in relation to property law? Is there much awareness amongst perhaps school age people or or even at the university level in, in terms of the possibilities that are available within it? I think there is a lack of awareness of what property lawyers actually do i i mean that a lot of a lot of um school age students aspire to be lawyers but they don't necessarily aspire to be property lawyers certainly not property litigators um and i think it's only by giving people a practical understanding of what property lawyers and what property litigators do that 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 makes this an, an attractive part of the profession I gave a lecture at Manchester University a few weeks ago um, on my my work and, and the work of a property litigator and the work of a property lawyer. And the, these were university law students who had studied property law. And they, you know, we had a very um, engaging discussion at the end of my talk um, because people genuinely had not had an understanding about what property litigators really do or, or what property lawyers really do. And we talked about 
what transactional lawyers might do um, and how it's possible even as a transactional property lawyer to specialise in a particular sector. You might be interested in shopping centres and retail or it might be residential or it might be sheds and logistical warehousing or it might be big towers in Canary Wharf. There, there are lots of different aspects to being a property transactional lawyer or you might be interested in the funding side. And equally, as a property litigator, we talked, um, for example, they had been learning about nuisance in their, I, I don't think it was in fact in their property course, it might have been in their their course on negligence and tort, but they'd been talking about nuisance and we were able to relate that back to the Tate Modern Viewing Gallery case, which had properly sparked people's attention because it's quite a cool story. People being overlooked, people having their photos taken in their homes, these photos being put on Instagram. Is it an invasion of privacy? Is it a nuisance? Does it breach um, human rights legislation? Is there a right to a view? Loads of that case throws up loads and loads of interesting questions. When it comes down to it, it's a property litigation claim. It's being run by property litigators. And that was just sort of a classic example of how people had taken some law, law of negligence, law of nuisance, well, law of nuisance, really, and not realised how it actually feeds into property law and property litigation. So we had a, a good, lively discussion about that. And I know they're all eagerly awaiting the the judgment in the Tate Viewing Gallery case, as are we all. Absolutely. As at this end, too. One aspects of your career I'd, I'd love to touch on um, is your work as deputy master. What prompted you to apply for that role and, and how have you found it? I was prompted to apply well as I said in my interview the Chancery Division is my is my professional home. Um, it's where I've always practiced and it was in part driven by the fact that as a more senior lawyer, I don't find myself going to court that often. And as I said at the outset, a day in court is, is what we all look forward to as litigators. You know, we all have to be conscious about cost and so on. And therefore, it's junior lawyers that, that often get sent to sit behind counsel on a day in court. And, and often we can't justify the cost of sending a partner. So I really wanted to spend some more time in court. And that seemed to me to be one very effective way to achieve that. And as I say, I've grown up with the um, civil procedure rules. I've grown up with the chancery guide, the chancery divisions where I've always practiced. And when they were recruiting for new deputy masters in the chancery division, it seemed like the perfect role for me to apply for. There are lots of sort of entry level roles into the judiciary um, part time, whether you sit as a deputy district judge in the county court or whether you sit as a recorder in the criminal court and sitting as a deputy master is is sort of an equivalent type entry role into the judiciary but this was this was just perfect for me because it was very much in my specialist area and actually one of the criteria was that you had a, a significant um that significant part of your practice was was chancery based and i would say 100% of my practice is chancery based. So, so that was why I applied. It's been quite a steep learning curve. I won't say it's been easy. P 
part, part of that's to do with COVID. Obviously, we were in lockdown when I was appointed. The courts were, were sitting remotely and are still sitting predominantly remotely not not for trials but for interim work which is which is very much um the domain of the the, the masters so it w- it was very much almost back to my early days it was it was sink or it was sink or swim in terms of conducting remote hearings and um yeah it's it's been a steep learning curve but one thing i would say is that i have learned something new on every occasion on which I've sat. Very small, obscure rules that might have been there in black and white that I'd never noticed before until someone brought it to my attention. I've had to become familiar with areas of law which were not um, necessarily within my original skill set. So so the Chancery Division, in addition to dealing with business property cases, deals with contentious probate um, and wills and trust cases. Um, and I've been um, handling a number of those, which was, as I say, a bit of a steep learning curve. But ultimately, the Chancery Division is incredibly well run. It's unbelievably efficient. Gone are the days when your papers disappeared into the court system and didn't emerge for weeks or months, having been lost as a paper trial was mislaid, being transferred from one department to another. Um, and the Chancery Masters, both the deputies and the full-timers, the, the work that we do is, is very much directed at ensuring the, the efficient operation of, of Chancery litigation. Paperwork is, is usually turned around within 24 hours. Any letter that comes into court is, is referred straight up to a Chancery Master. It's, it's usually dealt with, as I say, the same day or within 24 hours, parties can expect a reply. Um, and the quality of the judging, both um, both masters and um, high court chancery judges, is, is absolutely second to none. Probably get a hard time in the Queen's Bench Division now, but uh, for having said that, but uh, but but really, the Chancery Division is 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 world class in in terms of the quality of its judges and the efficiency of how it runs itself. So you've obviously got a really nice sort of complementary role um, in terms of how it how it sits with your day to day practice work, and you're obviously sort of developing new understanding as 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 you say each time you sit. When you think back on your career more generally, what are the points um, that you feel you've really been able to accelerate your career? I know you've touched on moving to a different firm, benefiting from some mentoring, um, you know, taking up this this new opportunity in 2020. But what have been the other sort of milestones along the way? I think I've just sort of stayed the course, really. I've just sort of never wavered in my commitment. I think that a career in law is never going to be easy. It's never going to be for someone who wants to switch off at 5.30 every day. There have been sacrifices in work-life balance, um, but there have also been, you know, really positive benefits to being a lawyer and and to having been successful. I, I think that there are still issues in the legal profession and the property profession that hold women back. I think the biggest issue and and, and the biggest concern I have is around 
lack of access to affordable childcare, which means that it's usually women that have to make compromises um, in their careers. And I'm very fortunate that I've never been in a position where where that has, has been a problem for me. I didn't have my children until I was already a partner and I was able to afford good quality childcare from seven o'clock on Monday morning to seven o'clock on Friday evening. And therefore, I've never had to decline a meeting or a, a business development event or a dinner or anything that that needed my time out of ordinary working hours and I think that that people who don't have that advantage are being disadvantaged in in the workforce and I think that if there's any leveling up to do it's around taking the pressures off women to allow them to develop their careers in the way they want to because by delivering good quality affordable childcare, by delivering support systems that mean people are not disadvantaged by being the primary child carer. This isn't really a comment on what's accelerated my career but I suppose it's a comment on what concerns me um, about other people's career development. For anyone listening today who's perhaps considering a career in property litigation or perhaps thinking of just exploring it as a possibility, what would you say to them? I would say that property litigation is far more interesting than than it might first appear. I think it it exposes you to um, a challenging range of legal issues. It exposes you to a challenging range of business issues and I take great pride in being able to drive around the city of London pointing out the buildings that I've had some input into. I might not have been there with the bricks and mortar physically building those buildings, but if I've some in some small way cleared the way for a building to be built, or if in some small way I've resolved a dispute um, that concerned a building, it's richly rewarding both for its legal challenges and and also just for the rich variety of uh, of what it involves. Joanna, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. I've really enjoyed hearing about your career and, and just a little bit more about property litigation practice generally. Thank you so much for your time. Absolute pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for having me. That was Bricks and Mortar from EG with Sarah Jackman. For more on developing a career in real estate, see the archive of the Bricks and Mortar series at popbeam.com and the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.